Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome back to Combat Chronicles. I'm Carl Mack. There's a couple things on the agenda for today. First and foremost, I have not yet watched uh, Stephen Fulton versus Daniel Roman, which obviously is a very important uh, suit bantamweight title fight. Um, and as for the UFC card, it was somewhat enjoyable, but any card which features uh, non-title heavyweights as the main event is rarely going to be worth talking about. But Evloyev versus Danny Gay was uh, really enjoyable. That was the one I was really looking forward to, and it really, in my opinion, uh, met my expectations. Um, really impressed with. Evloyev, Ige's always good, uh, really compact, uh, love his striking game, like what he was doing, like how Evloyev cut him off, um, both with his overhand right uh, on the exit, uh, as Ige tried to, to leave the pocket, and with the intercepting knee, as Ige tried to come in, and Evloyev was able to wrestle him, so um, really good performance for Evloyev, and he's now in the, should be now in the top 10 uh, featherweight rankings or, or thereabouts. Um, so for me, uh, really intrigued to see um, how they how they move him along because um, was he sixteen and home now? Awesome fighter, really really like him. Uh, not you know not without his foibles, but you know a conversation for another time next time he fights. But yeah, definitely check that one out and yeah check the UFC card out. There, there was some some enjoyable bouts on there, but yeah overall wasn't too excited by him. But the thing I'm most ex- excited for is the match, the crossover card between Rise and K1, which is due to take place as of recording on the 5th of June, two weeks from now. Uh, by this time, on the on the uh, 19th of June, the card will be over, because I believe it will be wrapped up by around uh, midday, 1 o'clock, sort of uh, UK time, uh, so what, 6 in the morning US time, and uh, probably 10, 11 o'clock in uh, Japan local time so yeah um, we'll, we'll be done two weeks from now if we get there and that's why we're talking about this because uh, Sakaki Bara has uh, you know, he already bankrupt, bank, uh, bankrupted Pride and you know well not bankrupted it but certainly ended it and they had to sell uh, due to losing its uh, TV deal uh, fun enough due to his Yakuza dealings and associations it's happening again it's, it's a weird position that the match which it for the uninitiated, is uh, the super fight between Tenshin Nasukawa and Takaru, uh, the two pillars of both Rise and K1, respectively, and two of the greatest pound-for-pound fighters in the history of kickboxing, certainly Japanese kickboxing, the two leading lights in the whole sport of kickboxing right now. It's somewhat fitting that Sakakibara's 
trying to crush kickboxing now. He's not even in kickboxing. He's he's an MMA guy. Ryzen have got a, did have a deal with Fuji, and uh, it seems that Sakaki Bara is is the avenue in to Fuji TV, which is you know the equivalent of an ABC or an NBC or a BBC for for a British uh, listener. You know, it's it's big national Japanese TV. It's it's it's, it's the number one channel as far as I know. Um, it's you know TV that anyone can see. That's why it's a big deal for the match and for kickboxing as a sport to get back on domestic TV uh, without a subscription for the first time in well, God, well over a decade. Um, the big deal is that you know, yes, it would be a, a tape delayed, but for those not watching on on Abama pay per view, they would be able to watch. They would watch um, unspoiled. This happens quite a lot on Fuji with Japanese sport. It's not an issue. Um, but also because it's going to be on Fuji TV, it brings a lot of sponsors. Um, so straight away, there's going to be a chance that sponsors are going to pull out. And although they've made a lot of money from ticket sales, um, I think the number I heard from someone in the know was about $25 million, which is huge for a kickboxing event. Um, they would have made more with a TV deal with Fuji, not just for the TV rights, but for the advertising rights that that would bring. Um and the rumour is that Fuji put their name on the Tokyo Dome, which you know is a huge venue which uh, vets the the rent the renters uh, the people renting out the venue quite uh, harshly, from what I understand. Fuji have got the clout where they can just go, we're we're, we're putting on an event, and Tokyo Dome organisers will say, yeah, thank you very much. Without them, they've got an event which is fronted by Abama, which is a big. Uh, uh, streaming service in Japan. It's kind of like a Netflix, but live. Uh, it's like a streaming service where it's like live TV. Um, yeah, they're a big name, but not as much clout. Also, the event is still being, you know, fronted essentially by a guy who has Yakuza connections. And for those that are unaware, as ubiquitous are uh, as the Yakuza are in Japan, they hold such a stigma in Japanese society that. Um, yeah, Tokyo Dome might well tell the match and its uh, principles to fuck off. I mean, I don't know if anyone knows, but if you've got any tattoos in Japan, it can be very difficult to go anywhere just because of the stigma associated with the Yakuza. You could be a Westerner with a I heart mum and be uh, refused entry to a to an onsen, a hot spring bath, because of the ban on tattoos, therefore banning all Yakuza, who are known, obviously, for their uh, traditional uh, tattoos. So... That's even to this day. There's a huge stigma surrounding the Yakuza. Uh, Ren Hiromoto, who, who was big, one of the leading lights of K1, now fights in Rising. Is often uh, chatter amongst fans. You know, how does he get on TV because of the tattoos? And there has been discussion about about that. Um, yeah, it seems outdated that they would still care, but it's a fact. So if Sakagi Bara kills this event, I think it's curtains for him. Um, he said he, he offered to step down and that didn't sway uh, Fuji's uh, opinion that they should no longer host this bout. It looks, fingers crossed, that the fight is still going to go ahead. Um, Takaru and Tenshin still, even after, basically to scale back after it was announced, there was an emergency conference. Subsequent to that, both Takaru and Tenshin expressed, if not reservations for going ahead with the bout, uh, they lamented the fact that it would no longer be on uh, on national TV. I think it's a really big driver for those two for making this fight. Yeah, of course, career big payday. Yes, of course, career defining bouts. But 
in terms of the the push to get a sport they both love and have fought in for for you know all of their lives essentially back on television. Uh, that was a big driver. So they're going to be a lot more about the match on next week's episode, which is the big one, the match special preview. Um, some of which the the, the talking points uh, discussed with my four brilliant guests over the last month or so uh, about the fight itself still very much um, uh, relevant, but of course. This is a constantly an ever-developing story, so there are things that maybe we don't mention that I'm mentioning now, just to cover that. I'm sure I'll bring it up again on the final edit as well next week, just to sort of uh, you know tie together the discussions we've had. But um, that's the big one next week. That's the podcast, and uh, one I'm really, really looking forward to showing to you guys. So, yes, in short, we're on tenter hooks, but it appears that the match is still going ahead, even with the 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 yakuza. Controversy and uh, still no news on international broadcaster. Still, fingers crossed, we'll get that this week as well. Lo and behold, uh, this 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 uh, this conversation and and this uh, this completely dominated discussion of the match uh, for the past week. So, lo and behold, funnily enough, announcing the international distributor was not at the top of their priorities. Um, because you know this is one of the biggest stories, but hey, we always knew it was a nightmare to get to this stage, and uh, you know if you assumed it wasn't going to be a bumpy road along the way, then well, I don't know what to tell you, my friend, but you were very sorely mistaken. But Takaru talking today, as of uh, as of recording, fifth of June, uh, about you know how the weight cuts tough and the training's tough, but he's gonna just it's all about winning the fight. So. It, seems to me that no matter what him and Tension have said, um, there's still enough in terms of ticket sales and, and the Abama uh, pay-per-view deal and the fact it's going to be, what, 60,000, maybe 55 to 60,000 people in the arena, that this fight is still going to happen. They're going to do it for the fans, but ultimately what they wanted to do for the sport of kickboxing uh, will not come to fruition and that's, that's a crying shame. Everyone deserves to see this fight. It really is a mega fight and that goes for the international fans too. A fight that no one wanted to see, uh, sorry, everyone wanted to see, but now no one wants to see ever again, was uh, the four-bout unification between Devin Haney and George Cambosos. So after this, we're going to talk all about that. And uh, and in, va- in advance, for all you Devin Haney fanboys, I'm sorry. Combat Chronicles podcast is here to bring you previews, reviews and a look at the rich history of combat sports. The only way we can do it is with your support. So please head on over to www.patreon.com slash combat chronicles. But of course, monetary support is not the only way you can get involved. Head on over to your preferred podcast platform and give us a five star rating and review to make the podcast more visible to others. Thanks for listening and back to the show. For all of you that have already signed up to the Patreon. It really is um, well appreciated. I hope you're enjoying the bonus content. Uh, as always, for anyone that uh, joins up and not following on Twitter, let me know over at CombatCHR, that's C0MBATCHR. And DMs always open both on Twitter and on Patreon if you've got any thoughts, if you like the content, if you don't like it, is there anything that you uh, would, would appreciate more? Um, before we get on to Devin Haney and George Cambosos, um, there is something special I keep saying that's going to happen on the Patreon uh, probably in the next week or so. Probably be after the match now. Um, after the match, sorry, after the match podcast. It'll tie in really nicely with the match, funnily enough, because it is somewhat kickboxing adjacent, shall we say. And that's the uh, episode of Closet Classics I keep referring to because it's taking a little bit longer because not only am I writing part of the episode, 
it's a new venture for me, something I've been thinking about for a very long time. It's somewhat of an audio documentary. So that portion, only maybe five to ten minutes. Um, but then there's another portion at the end with uh, an interview with uh, or a conversation with my good friend uh, Luca Bourdon. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. Hopefully you'll enjoy it more than the much-anticipated four-belt unification between Devin Haney and George Cambosos. Now, Devin Haney won uh, somewhat clearly, but not as clear. I don't know if any... Anyone listening to the Sky Sports broadcast, but they had it pitching a shout, and every time, every single round, it was all about look at Haney, look what he's doing. This is unbelievable, sheer masterclass. He does this, he does that. And I'm sorry, guys, I just don't see it. I didn't see it before this fight, I didn't see it during this fight, and I don't see it after the fight. Haney does a lot of things well. He is rapid, he is fast, uh, very good at slipping backwards, uh, getting out of harm's way. Uh, Generally good reactive head movement, um, not perfect. Uh, Cambosos was able to lull him into uh, some left hooks and some right hands to the body, which com- went completely unnoticed by the Sky Sports team. I'm not saying that they didn't notice anything to the extent that this fight is a robbery or anything like that. Clear, f- clear for me that Devin Haney won. Um, clear for me that Cambosos definitely won some rounds. He was uh, even when he wasn't being completely effective, he was trying harder and was landing enough shots. To either body or head, um, loved always loved the way he works in the right hand. This is his best tool in my opinion. Um, right hook, which is uh, usually underused by orthodox fighters for obvious reasons, the one you have to extend and reach for the most and can put you out of position. Um, he did land it at times. Definitely whipped it round to the body well. For me, that offsets sparing use of an accurate jab because that's all Haney does in certain rounds. You can't be a round sleeper when you already have a low output. And a lot of people will say the sport of boxing is to hit and not be hit. I hear it all the time from a certain contingency of fans. Fans that started watching boxing during uh, Floyd Mayweather's uh, later career prime, not his early prime, because that's when he was smashing people. But yes, it's absolutely true. The sport is to hit and not be hit. But I also expect elite level fighters, especially four bout champions, to be able to build off a jab, to be able to do something with it. And what Haney does is he settles into a rhythm. And that's all he does. Then he takes rounds off, and then he starts establishing that rhythm again. And essentially, he is jab first, and not much else. And he is like that in a lot of his fights. And he takes rounds off in a lot of his fights. And he is awful on the inside. He he clinches. He In this fight, we saw him a lot of stepping around the back of, of Cambosos and doing very, very little, begging the referee. Every time Cambosos got clear, even if the, the work, work was uh, rough and rugged, which, you know, is, is not clean, but... He, you got to do what you got to do. Haney just looks to the ref. He moans. He complains. These are all things which are, although his jab and movement-heavy approach is conducive to winning rounds and not allowing fighters to get close to him, in my opinion, it's not conducive to winning rounds against someone who's a lot more talented and diverse than George Cambosos. So forgive me for not anointing Devin Haney as some pound-for-pound entrant. Yes, he has four bouts. It's very impressive. I'm happy for him. Um, he's finally a legitimate champion. Um, but Cambosos captured lightning in the bottle against Teofimo Lopez. Amazing performance. One of the best of the year. Um, absolutely phenomenal showing. Uh, there could be no doubt. Totally, uh, not against type for Cambosos, but kind of belied what we'd seen from him before. Um, you know, relatively close fights with fighters who, in my opinion, were not elite lightweights. Against the best opponent of his career, he put it all together. 
Now, Haney's fighting the best opponent in his career, and yes, indeed, this is the best opponent of his career, not a well past his prime, Jorge Linares. And he's not putting it all together. He's putting together a winning performance, and well done to him. I'm not having a go at him for being safety first. I don't care. Yeah, get out get out of the ring with lots of money, belts, and keep all your brain cells intact. It's absolutely fine. But what I'm saying is, that is not an elite performer make. There are going to be times where he can't just stick behind the jab. There are going to be times where he can't fall forward like he did and just fall into a clinch, hang on for dear life. And he reacts badly every time someone steps to him. Every time he gets clipped, there's there's an air of fragility about him. I was speaking to a good friend of mine on Twitter this morning uh, in the DMs and uh, said what this fight reminded me of in terms of ebb and flow was the rematch between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz. Where, sure, Joshua... Box behind the jab to a game plan and won convincingly on the scorecards, but looked completely shaky every time Ruiz got anywhere near him. Haney, for me, fights in a way that doesn't show that he's some incredible boxing genius, but only shows to me that he's well aware of his deficiencies and is trying to put a plaster over a gaping shotgun wound. I'm not saying that's that's smart boxing. I get it. But don't be telling me that this guy is elite. Don't be telling me that this guy is one of the best pound for pound in boxing. For my money, he is the very worst four belt champion in the history of boxing. There haven't been many of them. Let's go through them. Bernard Hopkins, uh, of course, one of the all-time greats of middleweight. Um, I mean, I want to talk about a fighter who was somewhat safety first, but managed to put it all together. I mean, look how he unified against Felix Trinidad. There's a guy who knew how to build upon establishing and dominance of range of the jab and knew how to build upon a jab-based game plan to take apart an elite fighter. That's all I need to know compared to Haney, compared to Bernard Hopkins. Hopkins, yes, older, don't get me wrong. A lot more experience, don't get me wrong. This is not saying Haney shit, this is saying based comparing him to other unified champions. But that's the kind of template that Hopkins showed. Yes, establish range. Yes, take away your opponent's best weapons. But also how to build upon that and be ruthless and win in impressive fashion. You can pitch a shutout, but don't necessarily make it impressive. Uh, Jermaine Taylor, who did beat Bernard Hopkins for his bouts, um, he was an athletic fighter, Taylor. For me, not a great fighter. Um, subsequent to beating Hopkins, uh, he'd never looked really good against against Casimuma or anyone. And then, obviously, in a very a brilliant, one of the best fights of the O's against Kelly Pavlik, lost the title. Um, T- Taylor was still better than Haney for me. Uh, uh, maybe a bit more erratic, but uh, just as talented. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at what he did, you know, to beat Bernard Hopkins, even an aging title to weight Hopkins... Even a fighter he was more athletic and faster than, still more impressive than Nathan Haney's done so far. So, jury's out on that one, but I'm still going to say Taylor. Uh, Terence Crawford, well, I think the lightweight weight title and the unification was against some pretty shoddy opposition. Uh, but, you know, to even compare Devin Haney to Bud Crawford, a fighter who's completely versatile. And again, every time he dominates every facet of the fight, it's in ruthless pursuit of a stoppage. Um, yeah. 
it's not even a comparison. Alexander Usyk, one of the um, 75 greatest fighters of all time, in my opinion, uh, the greatest cruiserweight of all time, who can win in any way, shape, or form, and beat uh, one of the uh, best uh, rosters of fighters any unified champion has ever had to beat. So uh, that goes for the two bout era and the four bout era and the three bout era. Um, so yeah. For me, absolutely no comparison. Goes without saying. Uh, Josh Taylor, um, yeah, slightly better than Bud Crawford's run uh, lightweight, in my opinion. Admittedly, um, if you listen to this podcast from the start, you would know that he terribly uh, underperformed against Jack Catterall, and it has somewhat, um, what's the right word for this? I guess this has kind of cut the bollocks off what I considered his reign to be. I really did think he was going to be an all-time great, like well away. Um, but still, uh, based on skill set and what he's shown and what he can do in the in the ring, still way more versatile uh, than uh, Devin Haney. Canelo Alvarez, need I say more? Uh, I don't need to say anything. Uh, Jim Charlo, I've again threatened the Patreon podcast, which I think is actually going to come out before and then it's Closet Classics. I think that'll be this week. Uh, Jamal Charlo goes without saying that I think that he is more talented, more versatile, more impressive than Devin Haney. And then Devin Haney. Uh, I'm not going to go for the women's champions. You know, you can safely say that Devin Haney's um, better than them because women's boxing, in my opinion, is, is relatively poor. Um, but yeah, Devin Haney is, is the latest champ. And yes, he can build on this. Yes, he can impress me more. Yes, he can go on to take on more impressive opponents and show that, you know what, if he could do a jab-heavy approach and not much else against Vasily Lomachenko, or can do that against Javon A. Davis and stay away from the counter, Tank Davis fought last week against Raleigh, and I never mentioned it because for me it was completely inconsequential, but there's definitely a route to beating Tank, even how dangerous he is those things, then I'll go, do you know what? Haney's impressed me because that shows a versatility against styles. Okay? Versatility within your own style is one thing. The view can be one-dimensional and project that against other styles. Then it makes me more impressed. But at present, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that Devin Haney, who has all the bouts in the division, is the best in the division. And looking through those champions that we just mentioned, that is the first time in modern boxing history that you can safely say that the person with all four bouts in the division was not the best fighter in the division. And that is an indictment on Devin Haney's talent. For me, Cambosos, as I say, he, he really did catch uh, lightning in a bottle against TFL Lopez in a career-best performance, which I think... Uh, is is it an ex was an excellent fight and also an excellent performance. Not take anything away from him whatsoever. Uh, but this is more like the fighter he is. Um, you know, he's quite a rough fighter in terms of his actual output. Um, he's not that seamless transition between different things. I liked what he did in this fight. Um, as the fight went on, he did inch closer to Haney. He did start to establish his own jab. All went unmentioned, unnoticed, uh, seemingly. If it was not unnoticed, it was certainly unmentioned by the Sky Sports commentary team of uh, Adam Smith and Matt Macklin, who continue to be a blight on all British uh, boxing broadcast. Absolutely terrible. Um, Haney did what he needed to do. Haney did not do what I thought he should have done. I thought he could have performed a lot better. He really could have solidified himself as an excellent champion. Okay, went to Australia, won all four bouts. You may think I'm being hypercritical, but why would you not be hypercritical 
of someone being anointed as one of the division's best, of someone who just won four bouts. Surely trying to contextualise a performance which is apparently so brilliant is all part of the game. And Devin Haney, for me, impressed as I am that he's achieved what he's achieved, away from home, with all the issues he's had this week, with parts of his team either not being able to go to Australia at all, or getting in very, very late, such as his dad. I mean, Ben Davis, he, he trains a lot with Ben Davidson nowadays, who, due to the Daniel Kinahan controversy, who's somewhat of a far more dangerous Irish Sakakibara, someone who's uh, decided to, uh, inadvertently, through his own arrogance, has scuppered the careers of lots of bright uh, people who are even peripherally uh, associated with his criminal organisation. Sakakibara is somewhat different there. He is just peripherally uh, associated with a criminal organisation. He is not uh, any sort of kingpin himself. Um, but Devin Haney was trained with Ben Davison, had to change tact. Then his father couldn't get into Australia because they're so uh, tight on uh, immigration laws and whatnot due to, you know, that's, that's, their, that's their prerogative and, you know, stand by that. That's fine. Uh, but, you know, to act like Devin Haney's week and training camp and everything leading up to, to this fight wasn't interrupted uh, would be bullshit. Um, he definitely had a lot of challenges. Cambosos had his own challenges, couldn't make weight, and then did make weight and then told everyone, hey, that was, who knows that what if that wasn't my plan? Well, come on, man. At that point, I realised that Cambo was a bit too stupid to win, quite frankly. Um, and the fact he still made it somewhat competitive in a fight that Haney apparently bossed from start to finish makes me think that Haney himself isn't all that impressive. And I don't think it was a shutout. I don't think it wasn't a one one six one one two. I think you could definitely make argument. As I say, look at the rules of boxing. Haney's landed nice, nice clean jabs here and there in certain rounds. And Cambo's landing a couple of clean body shots and a load of scuffing. He's being more aggressive. Haney's landing maybe a jab, then doing nothing, then clinching, then doing nothing. Those are Cambosos rounds. They're scrappy rounds with fuck-alls happening, but one guy's trying a bit harder. It's not like Haney put on this masterclass in every round. Certain rounds he really did do fuck-all, but landed one or two jabs. That was it. The only clean punches he landed. For me, right up to the body... Scuffing left, left hook upstairs. It clearly lands, but you know it's somewhat. Haney somewhat takes the edge off it. Those are scoring punches. I don't think Haney won twelve nil, and I think that the fight was more competitive than than a shutout. If you watch it in the middle rounds, anyway, um, I think you know Haney ran away with it in the last couple of rounds and actually did a couple of impressive things. Um, one thing I really liked from Haney was the uh, slipping inside the jab and throwing the Jersey Joe Walcott uppercut, which is the shot that he landed on. As a Charles, um, he sort of slipped inside the jab, then boom, up comes the left uppercut. Really nice work. I think he did it once in 36 minutes. Um, even though Cambosos was constantly falling short with the jab, Haney could have just stepped in, dipped his head to his own left, bang, whipped that in a lot more. But this is not who he is as a fighter. He's a safety first fighter, one dimensional, with very few wrinkles to his game. He is young, his achievements are impressive. As a fighter, uh, forgive me for not being completely bowled over by someone who chooses to do close to fuck all. Um, yeah, yeah, good for him. I'm happy for him. But um, forgive me for not thinking he's some uh, world-conquering, all-terrain fighter, because he isn't. 
and there are a few really stiff tests at lightweight but there are some other guys that could potentially give him a, a tougher run even than Cabosa so I think going forward it's going to be interesting to see how they manage Haney I would not be surprised if this is this was a calculated risk I think people were saying look he's gone to Australia to take on the number one lightweight in the world well you know a light, number one lightweight who had one legit world class performance himself so definitely a calculated risk I would not be surprised if Haney does not take any of them anytime soon um, much as you can tell in his style that he's been influenced by Floyd Mayweather Jr. I think um, a lot of these fighters that are Floyd light in terms of their styles are even more Floyd light in terms of uh, the risks they take and I could definitely see um, them managing Haney uh, and milking these bouts against uh, you know mandatory challenges over and over again uh, but I think Lomachenko is next in line for one of them so hopefully they do make it and uh, you know if not Haney, Ryan Garcia or Javante Davis, whatever, I'd gladly see any of these. Um, but Lomachenko is the fight to make. Unfortunately, and this is where the title comes from, it looks like they're going to have to make Devin Haney versus George Cambosos Jr. 2 out in Australia again, which was part of the uh, contract for, for Cambo allowing Haney a shot to unify the belts in the first place. So there's no doubt they're going to try and rinse that, the, uh, the Aussie team. They're definitely going to try and go for it. I don't know if Bob Aram will be able to get out of it or not. It reminds me of the situation Aram had with Fury and the Wilder uh, third fight. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty sure that Haney is going to have to travel down under again, take on Cambosos again, and next time, guys, I'm very, very doubtful that I'll be covering it in any way, shape, or form on the podcast because I anticipate another stinker because, quite frankly, most of Haney's fights are stinkers. And uh, I'm not sure, even though I think Cambosos did better than a lot of people uh, giving him credit for I don't think he can do anything to get much closer so yeah it's going to be as bad if not worse in my opinion um, I'm rooting for Haney to put it all together add more wrinkles to his game and become an elite level operator I'm just saying based on what I've seen so far I'm not seeing all the plaudits speaking of elite level pound for pound level performers as said earlier on this podcast next week is the big preview build up of the match what you can expect to hear uh, I think it's over two or three hours long it's me Luca Bourdon Baba the Dogman, and Shunsuke all of us are answering the same three questions so it's you know guys everyone answers the same three questions me and those four we get a wide range of uh, discussion and answers to those three questions you know we don't want to go off on any tangents we're trying to keep it as focused as possible but there are tangents galore regarding the history of kickboxing regarding our history as kickboxing fans and quite frankly I think it's the best podcast Combat Chronicles has ever put out so I really hope you enjoy that and I really hope you're looking forward to it because we've been building towards it next week the big build up to the match and the week after all the fallout of it. So let's hope we see it because not only is it exciting to watch, not only is it exciting to anticipate, not only is it fucking nail biting, hoping you get there, but we get to talk all about it afterwards. Not just the main event, but the completely stacked undercard. This is, in my estimation, and no hyperbole whatsoever, the best combat sports event of the year and for many years. So until next week, I hope you enjoyed this one. And if you've got any issues with my uh, appraisal of Devin Haney's talents, as usual, hit me up on 
twitter.com at combatchr with the zero in combat. Again, Cody Garbrandt got me permaband. What a cunt. But if you really want to talk to me and you really want to get my attention, become a patron. www.patreon.com slash combat chronicles. Hope to see you over there and hope to uh, get your feedback on what I'm putting out. Thanks for listening. See you next week for the big one. Yeah.